in Susan Walter's own words, she was a piece of cake. She was middle-aged, overweight, and had two bad knees. But what the intruder in her Oregon home didn't know when he came at her with a hammer in September of 2006 was that Susan was also an ER nurse who was highly trained in self-defense. This is the story of how Susan Walters not only fought for her life, but also fought to make an impact for other victims of violent crimes. Hi, I'm your host, Missy, and I'm about to take you on a wild ride. Stories with plot twists, shocking endings, and unbelievable truths. Trust me when I tell you that this story is nuts. September of 2006, Susan Walters was going by Susan Kuhnhausen. She had just finished her shift as an ER nurse at Providence Portland Medical Center in Portland, Oregon, a place that she had worked for 30 years. Before heading straight home, she would stop at the hair salon, taking a moment to herself to relax. As she returned to her house, she entered through the mudroom. It was at the back of the house, and in the mudroom there was a note from her husband, Mike. Mike Kuhnhausen and Susan Kuhnhausen were married for the last 17 years. But recently, Susan had enough of Mike, and she had asked for a divorce. Mike had refused to divorce Susan, however, and the two would fight often. They also still lived together in the blue one-story home in southeast Portland. The note would say, Hadn't been sleeping. Need to get away. I'm going to the beach. See you Friday or Saturday. Susan would punch in the numbers for her security system, open the door, kick off her shoes, and notice something strange. The house was dark, which was unusual because normally Susan would open the curtains before she left for work. She took it as maybe she forgot that day. She made her way into her bedroom, and she would be shocked to find that she wasn't alone. A man, 5'9", 190 pounds, wearing a baseball cap pulled over his eyes, wearing yellow rubber gloves, jumped out at her from behind the door. He was carrying a black and red claw hammer. As the strange man approached her, she asked him what he wanted, thinking maybe he was there to rob her. He didn't answer. There was one thing that the man yielding the claw hammer didn't know, however. Susan, with all the other nurses at the Portland Medical Center, had regularly trained in self-defense. Susan knew that if she stepped closer to him instead of away, that the blows from the hammer would have less of an impact. So she crowded him. He took a swing at her, and he hit her directly in the temple. She asked him again who he was and what he wanted, still receiving silence. Susan might have been shorter than the man at 5'4", but she did outweigh him, and she attempted to use her weight to body slam into him. It didn't work. He pushed her back and into the wall. He would utter only one thing to her. You're strong, he said. Susan realized in this moment that the man was not there to rob her. He was there to kill her, and she wasn't going to wait for it. Mm-hmm. 
Somehow, Susan wrestled the hammer from his hands, hitting him three or four times in the head with it. But he would get it back from her. She then grabbed his throat and squeezed. As the man's face changed colors, Susan let go and attempted to flee. But he would chase her, sending her to the floor in the hallway. As he stood over Susan with the hammer, she knew that she only had one chance to survive, and that was to get him on the floor with her. Somehow she managed to get him to the floor, and then she began to bite him. She bit him on his arm and on his thigh, even biting through his zipper into his genitals. She knew if maybe she left teeth marks, he could be tied to her death. She tried to reach into his pockets to grab an ID or anything she could find to throw under the bed, so that if investigators found her dead, they would also find evidence. Susan would manage to throw her leg over the top of him, climb on top of him, and then hook her left arm around his neck. The fight had lasted a total of 15 minutes, and Susan now had him in a chokehold. She told him that if he just told her who sent him, she would call him an ambulance. Still silence. She tightened her grip until he stopped moving. As soon as he stopped moving, she quickly grabbed the hammer and then ran next door to a neighbor's house, and the neighbor would call 911. Police would identify Susan's now deceased attacker as Ed Haffey, a 59-year-old with a long rap sheet. When Susan and her friend returned to her home the next day to collect Susan's belongings, her friend noticed a backpack in the basement that wasn't supposed to be there. Inside the backpack was a day planner, and written in the day planner, on September 4, 2006, just two days before the attack, were the words, Call Mike. Mike Kuhnhausen had offered to pay Ed $50,000 for the murder of his wife of 17 years, Susan Kuhnhausen. It also turned out that Mike and Ed had worked together as janitors at Fantasy Adult Video. A bulletin was put out for Mike, and he would be found on September 13, 2006. It was later discovered that Mike's motive for the attempted murder of Susan wasn't for the life insurance policy, since he was no longer a beneficiary. It was so he would get the house that the two had lived in when Susan died. Mike denied having anything to do with the attempted murder of Susan, but no one believed him. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison for the solicitation of aggravated murder. Susan Kuhnhausen would change her name to Susan Walters, and although Susan had survived, she would still live in fear of Mike. She would move, install an alarm system, make sure gravel was outside of her house so she could hear footsteps. She planned to put up surveillance cameras and devised a run plan, she called it, just in case she needed to get into hiding. She even made a will. In 2008, she filed a lawsuit against Mike for emotional distress for $1 million making sure he wouldn't have enough money to attempt to hire another hitman to kill her. As the date neared for Mike's release in 2016, Susan again would start to panic. She would suffer from nightmares and was too distracted to work. And even worse was Susan realized that as she tried to find out more and more information regarding Mike's release, she was faced with roadblocks instead of answers. Susan would once again need to get to work. With help from other agencies and resources, Susan would develop Case Companion, 
a web-based portal that allows victims of crimes to become better informed on the status of an inmate. According to their website, you can look up offender status and access up-to-date information about their cases from multiple agencies. As of 2017, Case Companion was only available in, and hopefully I don't butcher the name too bad, Multnomah County, but they were hoping to make it statewide. I was unable to find any information on whether or not that actually happened. However, I did find VineLink, which also has custody status and criminal case information, which I will post the links to those websites for you on our source material. Mike Kuhnhausen died at 65 years old in the Snake River Correctional Institution from prostate cancer, 91 days before his release date in 2016. Susan Walters went on to become a motivational speaker and helped to provide self-defense expertise in the Portland Police Bureau's Women's Strength and Girls' Strength programs. She has also become an expert on victims' rights. And that night in 2006, Susan had told Ed she wasn't going to die in her own home. And since, she's been hailed a hero. She didn't feel like a hero, though. And she's quoted to have said, I didn't choose to kill him. I chose to live. What was supposed to be a simple shopping trip would quickly turn into a nightmare, and it would change Michalina Lewandowski's whole life forever. Michalina's quick thinking and something else would be the one thing to save her life. Today we take a look at survival and what one woman will do to stay alive. (music) 27-year-old Michalina Lewandowska was getting ready to go out on a shopping trip with her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Marcin Kaspersak. Marcin and Michalina's relationship had been rocky the past few years, and so when he texted her to invite her to go out, she was surprised and yet also excited. You see, she had hoped for the best in their relationship, and maybe, just maybe, Marcin was starting to turn things around. Michalina and Marcin had met in Poland, where they're both from, in 2005, and they quickly took a liking to each other. By 2006, the pair moved from Poland to England after Marcin had proposed. They had hoped to start a new life together, and Marcin was also offered a job there, so it seemed promising. By 2008, Michalina would give birth to their son that they would name Jacob. But with a newborn, things quickly soured for the couple, and Michalina would call off their engagement. They would continue to see each other, off and on, for the next three years, however. On May 28, 2011, Marcin would offer to take Michalina shopping, and since Jacob was with his grandmother, Michalina would agree. She would get ready, even putting on her diamond engagement ring, something she didn't often wear anymore. As Michalina was finishing putting up her makeup, she hears Marcin and his 18-year-old friend named Patrick talking in her living room. As Michalina would step out to greet the two men, Marson would tell her to come over to him. He had something to show her. It is at this point that Marson would take a 300,000 volt stun gun from his pocket and taser Michalina in the neck. She would crumple on the floor in pain, and he would continue to do it again and again. She would beg him to stop, but Marson, a 
a 224-pound bodybuilder who was addicted to steroids, would kneel on her chest and laugh. Michalina would hear Marson tell Patrick to get the packing tape before she would black out. Michalina would awaken two hours later, slumped on the floor in her kitchen. She was gagged, bound, and her mouth taped shut. Marson would tell her not to be scared, but he and Patrick would place her in a large box, taping it shut over her. Marson and Patrick would lift the box and carry it to the trunk of Marson's car, driving Michalina to an area in Hutterford, West Yorkshire. It was here that the box would be placed in a shallow grave. Michalina would hear the sound of dirt as it hit the top of the box and began to cover her. Michalina wanted to panic. Inside of the box, it was dark and the air was thin. But she knew if she tried to escape her prison, that Marson would more than likely kill her with the very spade he was using to bury her. She needed to wait. Biding her time, she would strain her ears to hear if the car had left or if the voices had stopped. She slowed her breathing, knowing that with each breath, she was losing air. Eventually, though, with all of the time passing, Michalina knew she had to get out of the box, whether Patrick and Marson were still there or not. It was then that Michalina would remember something. That morning, Michalina had put on her engagement ring, something she didn't do every day anymore. But she looked down at her finger and she remembered that the diamonds could be used to cut her binds. She would use the ring to saw through the packing tape on her mouth first, then on her legs and wrists. She would then use it to make a hole in the box. Once a hole was made, she could tear through the hole with her fingers, making the hole even bigger. Dirt would fall onto Michalina's hair and face, covering her inside the box. It was then she would try to scream, but no one could hear her. Discouraged and in pain, Michalina knew she could not give up. According to Michalina in later interviews, the thought of her son Jacob growing up without a mother pushed her to continue to fight until she pushed her arms and then her legs out of the box entirely. Exhausted and in pain, she would make her way to the side of the road, where a motorist would find her and police would be called. Later, when crime scene investigators would examine the scene, they would discover that the large box had been a computer box with two holes poked into it for breathing. The box had been buried under leaf litter, soil, branches, twigs, and tree roots, and also an 88-pound log that had been moved over the grave. It was also discovered that after the kidnapping, Marson and Patrick would use Michalina's bank card to withdraw 500 pounds from her account. They would then return home to play video games until police would come to arrest them that very same day. Marson would later tell investigators that he had only intended to scare Michalina and that he had planned to return that day to get her, but no one believed his story. And he would later be charged with kidnapping and attempted murder. And the motive behind Marson attacking the woman he supposedly loved? It was actually all based off of a rumor. You see, Marson had heard that Michalina was finally going to leave him, and she was going to take their three-year-old son Jacob with her back to Poland. But it was a story that was completely untrue. 
Marcin Kasparak would be sentenced to 20 years in prison for the kidnapping and the attempted murder of Mikalina Lewandowska. Marcin's 18-year-old friend and accomplice Patrick would not be charged in the attempted murder, but he would be charged in the kidnapping of Mikalina, and he would receive four and a half years for his part. Mikalina's strength and her quick thinking, as well as her love for her son and an engagement ring she didn't even wear anymore, all saved her life. She is able to go on and raise her son Jacob, although she still admits to having nightmares over the whole ordeal. I did want to finish this story with a quote from Michalina. She said, He wanted me dead and wanted to kill me in the most horrific way imaginable, but I was not going to let him succeed, and using my last bit of strength, I kicked and clawed my way out of that grave. Now he is the one imprisoned, and I hope he rots in there. If you want to discuss this case or any other case that we discuss on the podcast and you haven't joined that Facebook group yet, go ahead and join right now. It's facebook.com backslash this story is nuts podcast. I also am on Twitter and on Instagram. Instagram is this story is nuts and Twitter is story nuts. And I'm a little bit more active on that Facebook page, but I am on each one of them a little bit here and there. So I try to be active. I'm trying to be a little bit more active than normal, but I also would like to hear from you. So if you guys want to talk about the case or any other case, go ahead and hop on one of those. If you have a story for me, I would like to hear it. So if it's your own story, I'm really interested in personal stories. So if you would like to share and you would like your story featured on this podcast, or if you have a story suggestion, it is thisstoriesnuts at gmail.com. I would not shy away from having you as a guest. So if you would like to be a special guest on the podcast, get a hold of me on that email account. All right, you guys, come back next week for an all new episode of This Story is Nuts, which airs every single Wednesday starting at midnight. So you can go ahead at midnight and listen. Until then, stay nutty, my friends.
This Story's Nuts was written and produced by Missy Reese with music by Logan Reese off of Groovepad. <laughs>